Hello, friends, and welcome to the Epic Human Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Blair, and thanks for listening today. The Epic Human Podcast features risk takers and high performers from all walks of life. That includes startup entrepreneurs, VCs, professors, artists, athletes, authors, anyone who has a really compelling story or background to share. Today, I'm excited to bring you my friend, Catherine Marr, the CEO and Executive Director of the Wikimedia Foundation, the nonprofit organization that runs Wikipedia. Uh, and I couldn't be more excited uh, to share the amazing conversation we had with you today. Uh, but first, I wanted to mention uh, that we have some news here at the Epic Human Podcast. Uh, I mentioned in the season opener that this year would be full of surprises, and here's the first one. I'm proud to announce our very first show sponsor. Uh, the sponsor is SBZ Legal, a boutique law firm out of Oakland, California, that specializes in working with early stage startups. Uh, and as I've witnessed firsthand in an investor, uh, one of the most important decisions entrepreneurs make is choosing the right legal partner for their business. And one common assumption is that uh, good lawyers super expensive. Uh, and a lot of entrepreneurs will therefore DIY their legal needs or they'll put it off and they'll end up paying thousands of dollars per hour for an attorney's time. Uh, but it does not have to be that way. SBZ Legal specializes in working with early stage startups. Uh, the firm was founded by three Berkeley alumni on the idea that a business can be a positive tool for change. They focus specifically on helping impact-driven organizations with forming their business, fundraising, closing deals, hiring people, and protecting their intellectual property. Not only does SBZ take pride in doing high-quality work, they're also transparent about their pricing, and they don't charge an arm and a leg, which is important when you're working with early-stage startups. You can learn more about SBZ at sbzlegal.com, or you can contact them at info at sbzlegal.com. And if you'd like to drop by and say hello, their address is 1939 Harrison Street, Suite 610, Oakland, California, zip code 94612. And for all you regulators out there, I'm required to say by law that this may be considered attorney advertising. So getting back to today's episode, like I said, it's with Catherine Marr, CEO and Executive Director of Wikipedia. Uh, we all know Wikipedia. We've pro probably all use it on a daily or weekly basis. I know I do. Uh, and we've really grown up with it. It's been around since 2001. Uh, and for those who don't know, Wikipedia is the fifth most popular website in the world. So just behind some websites you might know like Google and YouTube and Facebook. Uh, it's actually uh, more trafficked than other websites you might use very frequently like Twitter uh, and Amazon. So truly an influential organization and, uh, and public good. Uh, so today on the episode, uh, I talked with Catherine a little bit about uh, Wikipedia itself, you know, where it is today um, and how it is faring in this kind of unique uh, era of fake news as, you know, an organization that seeks to be truly neutral. Uh, we also talk about how Wikipedia is growing and diversifying its editor base. Uh, we talk about the recent North Face controversy uh, that involved Wikipedia. And we talk about the future of Wikipedia. What are the risks? What are the opportunities? Uh, and how do they hold their own in uh, kind of dancing with these big tech giants? We also talk about Catherine's background, uh, how we grew up in the same area of Connecticut, uh, and her unique path through her academic life. 
uh, and then her early career and how she became the CEO of Wikipedia. And then we go into a few areas of her personal philosophy, as we normally do on the Epic Human Podcast, including one really authentic and compelling story Catherine told about uh, a failure uh, and what happened and what she learned from it and got out of it. Uh, I, I appreciate how uh, candid and authentic uh, Catherine was in this conversation, and she is truly a brilliant thinker and an articulate person. So it was my pleasure to have her on the podcast, and I am sure you will enjoy this conversation. So without further ado, please give it up for an epic human, Catherine Marr. Live. We are live with Catherine Marr, CEO and Executive Director of Wikimedia Foundation, the nonprofit organization that runs Wikipedia, uh, and which is one of the world's most popular and beloved websites, fifth most popular website in the world, hundreds of millions of users, and uh, across hundreds of languages every month. Thanks for being on the podcast, Catherine. It's great to be here. Awesome. Well, you and I go way back, actually. <laughs> yes. We, uh, we went to grade school together. We went to high school together. Um, and I just want to share a brief memory uh, of when we were both uh, probably 15. <laughs> you were probably 16. Um, uh, you came over to my house in, uh, in a vehicle that really <laughs> blew me away. So can you tell everybody a little bit about uh, this vehicle? And, uh, and please tell me you still own it. I do. I do still own it. It is... <laughs> It is a uh, 1974 Jeep CJ5, and it is bright orange <laughs> and has some pretty outsized tires and is, uh, yeah, it's a bit of a rust bucket, but I still own it and I love it. And it's a manual? It, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe like three speeds. Yeah. Oh, man. I mean, this was the time when like anyone who could drive was just like instantly, you know, a god but or goddess. <laughs> but, uh, but with this car, it was... Uh, you know, incredibly cool. So I, I still remember that and uh, and think of you fondly in that way. Uh, so, and I'm glad you still have the car. I'm, I'm amazed. Um, so, so let's talk a little bit about Wikipedia. Um, and so you gave this amazing talk at Google uh, called The Sum of All Knowledge, mm -hmm. which I'll, I'll include the link um, for people who want to check it out. But you said something really cool, which was that um, the problem with Wikipedia is that it only works in practice, mm -hmm. um, and in theory, it's a total disaster. Mm -hmm. So, please tell us all, like, what does that mean, and uh, and you know, what sh how, how should we think about that? Yeah, I mean, I wish that I was creative enough for that to be my quote, but that is sort of a saying that's been around Wikipedia for many years now. I think what we mean by that is that if you think about Wikipedia as an encyclopedia that anyone can edit, and think about what the internet is like and what expectations of people's ability to collaborate are like, it actually makes no sense that Wikipedia works the way it does. Um, if you know all of sort of our, our social science or economic science would say there's no reason people would volunteer their time, there's no way that it would actually get to accurate content, there would be trolls who would want to make sure that it's like the worst possible version of content and information, and yet it works, and it works because in practice, 
people come together and they focus on things that they're interested in, they focus on things that they know a lot about, and they have to collaborate uh, essentially effectively in order to get anything published on the site. And so there's all these sort of interesting incentive structures that take place behind the scenes that makes Wikipedia work, even if for a casual observer you'd say, come on, an encyclopedia, anyone can edit on the internet? I like, po couldn't possibly trust it, and yet here it is, one of the most trusted sites that exists today. And so, so tell me a little bit more about that, because um, I, I didn't know about this, but and I think most people don't know. Tell me, how, how does that, um, when you talk about people coming together and kind of ensuring that, uh, that it's, you know, the information is factual, the information is unbiased, how does that really happen yeah, in a practical so, sense? Um, it, in very small sort of, I, th I like to talk about it as it's, it doesn't happen at scale. So it's every individual edit, every individual article has a group of people who work on whatever that topic might be. Uh, I like, there was a great piece in Slate Magazine recently that talked about how Donald Trump's Wikipedia page is edited and the type of editors who focus on making sure it's accurate and as neutral as possible and up to date with new information in a news cycle in which there's something new about you know the presidency every single day. And the way that it works is when new information is available, um, on to create, and whether it's a new article, like a breaking news event, or whether it's updating an existing article about something, new scientific discovery, you know, new film that's come out. Wikipedia editors who are interested in, say it is that they're interested in Hollywood, or that they're interested in politics, or that they're interested in biology, they will identify whether an article exists, and if there isn't one, they'll write a new article from scratch that sort of adheres to a common style. Um, if an article exists, they'll go ahead and they'll find a new section to update. And what they'll do is they'll seek information from what we call reliable sources. So that could be a you know, academic journal that's been published through a process of peer review. It could be a newspaper that has some sort of editorial process like most of the big ones do. Um, it could be a nonfiction book that is written about a topic area in greater depth. And then they'll cite back to those sources and summarize those sources in the Wikipedia article itself. And that is sort of the, the way that we work is this sort of layer, we call it ourselves a tertiary source, we're a layer of information on other information that is meant to be sort of a high level overview or a summary. When topics are controversial, and this comes up a lot, mm -hmm. fake news and the like, yeah. um, what will end up Wikipedia editors will do is they will find as many sources as possible that describe that controversy or the point of data or information and so sometimes you'll see, and again, the Donald Trump article is one of these, uh, Barack Obama's article is another one, in which a particular topic area might have five or six or seven citations to all sorts of different news outlets or media sources or sources of reporting in order to buttress that claim or to refute a claim um, or to present different sides of an issue from those perspectives. So Wikipedia is, it's a community that edits it. They do it as volunteers. It is predicated on this idea that you need to have reliable sources. You can't sort of put in what we call fringe theories or conspiracy theories or new information. Um, everything has to be verifiable back to wherever that source actually is. And bit by bit, Wikipedia editors grow the encyclopedia day after day. And. But what about, uh, it sounds like most of the editors in your community are, are, are good actors, right? They're, they're, I think you've said it, like doing more good than harm, right? Yeah. But what about like the threat of bad actors? So yeah. the threat of 
whomever, whether it, whether it be a state or an organization or some sort of underground movement, kind of hijacking the kind of free and open nature of Wikipedia. Yeah, it's something we, we do think about. So we talk about, uh, you're absolutely right, sort of people doing more good than harm, or we the language we use is good faith versus bad faith. Mm -hmm. So somebody might try to improve Wikipedia and make a mistake, but it's a good faith mistake. And somebody might try to uh, harm or van what we call vandalize Wikipedia or introduce misinformation or just outright hoaxes. And we see that from time to time. Um, what usually happens, though, is when an article gets a significant amount of attention about a topic area, um, the editing community has the ability to see where there's spikes of editing or there's spikes of attention to articles. And that usually is a good indicator that someone's trying to manipulate content. So yeah. there was recently an, an article that uh, I think, again, I think it came out in Slate, but I'm not sure. Um, I can find it and send it over to you and you can include it in the link if you're interested. Um, that was about, there was the woman, I think her name is Marina Butova, who was a Russian spy who was arrested here in the United States and has been sort of in in public as there's been a trial that's been unfolding about her um, involvement in espionage and the Wikipedia editors noticed a pattern of editing on her page from a new editor that they hadn't seen before uploading photos that were associated with the editor and so they started asking questions okay where did this come from and they were able to dig in a little bit into that editing history and they realized that that was a sort of an effort to manipulate that page and present information in a different way that was outside of the bounds of Wikipedia policy so Every single edit that happens to Wikipedia takes place on a feed, sort of like a news feed, but way wonkier, of information about what was the size of the edit, what was the time of the edit, what was the article that it was associated with, the ability to review the, the edit and the difference between what the article looked like previously and what it looks like now, what we call a diff. And so our editing community can review that feed in real time. There are about 350 edits a minute. And then we have... Um, assistance to that editing community with a series of machine learning tools that can identify, you know, this is likely to be something that is vandalism and you should take a look, or this could be um, an, a good faith effort that was just a simple mistake, or this is something that is probably high quality based on, you know, other sort of associated patterns and, you know, probably doesn't require much closer scrutiny. Gotcha. And is it so it's kind of like uh, you have all these signals that you're tracking and it's kind of like antibodies kind of attacking a virus. I think that's a great way of explaining it. <laughs> yeah, it's, 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 a, it's, like, it's an ecosystem in homeostasis, right? So it, it sort of knows how to self-regulate mm -hmm. in the sense of when you start to see spikes of attention in one area or um, a lot of activity going on in another area, it, what happens within, including in terms of readership activity. So if there's a lot of editing activity, people will go, okay, why, why is that editing activity happening? Similarly, if there's a breaking news event, that readership activity draws people's attention to it. And so very often Wikipedia is cited in like celebrity death hoaxes, right? Which is a thing on the mm, internet that happens. Okay. And Wikipedians will see a spike in traffic to that page uh -huh. when a celebrity dies. <laughs> and then they'll, they'll say, okay, we need to go check on that page. Is something happening over there? Right. And so things get caught very quickly and then can be paused or, or frozen or sort of put on hold until information is clear or there's better sources of information to update what's going on. So is that what happened with uh, the North Face controversy? Can, and can you tell people a little bit about that oh, yeah. and, and your reaction to that? <laughs> uh, 
Um, so about two weeks ago, the North Face, uh, the marketing agency, I think out of their Brazilian um, uh, arm, used Wikipedia to upload a series of photographs of famous places, famous beautiful landmarks, um, outdoor spots, with people wearing North Face gear, backpacks, jackets, right. things like that. And then released a sort of promo video saying we collaborated with Wikipedia to, you know, hack the our way into the public consciousness and you know, reach the hardest to reach places, which is number one on, on search results. And we're going, <laughs> okay, that's A, you did not collaborate with us in any way. You overrode community policies and uh, manipulated our content policies in order to introduce these images. And as soon as Wikipedia editors identified that this was happening, they took down all of those images or cropped them and cropped your product out of it and reposted <laughs> them. So thanks for the photographs, but your product doesn't stay. Um, so the the reason this was such an issue for us was that we really think of Wikipedia as a public good. It's a resource that's available to the world. We're a nonprofit. We don't run this to make money. We don't run this as an advertising-based product. We don't track user data. We don't sell user data. We really think that this is the sort of online equivalent of a library or a public park. Mm -hmm. And when you walk into a public park, you don't expect to be sort of halfway down the trail and see a giant ad for North Face. Right. And when you walk into a library, you don't expect to be um, targeted with an, with an ad for whatever um, is related to the book that you're reading. Every book you open has a book right. that's in. Right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so from our perspective, this was both a, yes, it was a violation of our terms of service and use and all of that, but it was also just a violation of the public trust. Sure. And I think what was so painful about it was North Face is a company that has done a lot of good around preservation and raising awareness of the beauty of the outdoor ecosystem and right. like the outdoors as a public good. And so from our perspective, we were like, wait, you just went and littered it in the public park online. Why would you do that? Um, and so it was, it was disappointing, but... I think it was also a great learning opportunity because there was a really surprising amount of response in the press and online and social media of people saying, hey, that's not cool. Like, don't do that to Wikipedia. Wikipedia is for all of us. You know, you wouldn't. Why would you do that? Um, and I think that, you know, the backlash, I, I think it was probably not fun for the folks at North Face. The backlash was such that it created an interesting conversation within sort of the world of like ad age and these marketing type conversations around, well, what are the lines where we go too far in terms of stunt sort of marketing? Uh, so I hope there was a bit of a lesson learned, but uh, I hope so. It, yeah. was, it was ironic that they went and did that and then bragged about it, right? You think you'd kind of try to keep that secret for a little while and just let it run, but I know. that's that's crazy. Um, and it, I mean, it, it sounds like there was a backlash. Did, do you feel? Did you feel like they their apology was was kind of sufficient? Because um, because I I, I kind of saw they they kind of uh, apologized like in a response to a thread and. You know, it kind of got lost. I felt like in the fray. Um, I don't know if you if you felt similarly. Well, I think it did get lost in the fray. I I would liked to have seen sort of a bigger apology. I do think as well. My understanding, and I've I've learned more about North Face than I wanted to in the last couple of weeks, is that uh, it's a the 
part of the brand that did this as a subsidiary and sort of not the the main company here in the U.S. And so I think that there may have been something that got a little lost along the way. So mm. I genuinely think that there are folks over there who would not have wanted to see this sort of thing done and probably pretty regretful that it did. So, you know, we assume good faith and we'll ex- we accept the apology. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, that's that's big of you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And, and maybe you can explain a little bit. I mean, you've said before, like, no one owns Wikipedia, right? So could you explain a little bit just about the breakdown between Wikipedia and the Wikimedia, Wikimedia Foundation and how those two kind of interact? Yeah, that's right. So Wikipedia is, everything on Wikipedia is written under what's called a Creative Commons license, which means that it's open licensed. It's the equivalent of saying, I have copyright and I'm actually donating it to the world under some sort of conditions. And Wikipedia says, you can use any of this content as long as you say, hey, this came from Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean we don't actually own the content at the Wikimedia Foundation. We also only write and produce open source software. And so literally all the software that we write is not owned by us either. There's nothing proprietary about it. The only thing that the Wikimedia Foundation owns are the servers and sort of like the name Wikipedia. Um, so and when I say Wikipedia belongs to the world, I mean that both in a literal sense, like this content, this resource, this knowledge is something that belongs to every single person out there and that it, we have a shared responsibility to it. Um, the way that works at the Wikimedia Foundation is Wikipedia was created in 2001 and Wikimedia Foundation was created in 2003 in order to make sure there was a legal body that could take care of Wikipedia, host it, make sure that there was somebody there to answer the phones, um, you know, all the basic stuff, pay the bills. Uh, And so the Wikimedia Foundation owns Wikipedia in the sense of we own the servers and, and all of that, but, you know, we really view ourselves as stewards of this thing that belongs to many, many people all over the world. Gotcha. And another question that kind of occurred to me was, um, I I think I read somewhere that like 1% of the editors write most of the content, right? Which which isn't surprising, right? You've you've got power users kind of in every uh, kind of community or organization. Um, but, But how do you think about like a small percentage of people kind of developing this public good, this source of truth that everyone uses? And, you know, what, what's the makeup the, of those people? And is there any kind of like uh, diversity issues or like unconscious bias kind of issues? How do you think about that as you're kind of fostering a community? Oh, I think about it all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you're absolutely right. I think it's actually less than it's significantly less than one percent because we have about a billion and a half devices, unique devices that visit Wikipedia every month. Um, it's about 17 billion page views on a monthly basis. Yeah, it's really big. Wow. Joe's making a face. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then on a monthly basis, about 250,000 people who edit. And so okay. significantly less than sort of the 1% ratio. Um, of those 250,000, it's not the same 250 every month. It, it changes. There are people who edit once every six months. You know, they come, they correct a grammatical error, they add a citation, they add, update a fact. And then there are people who edit very continuously on topic areas that they're passionate about or they're responsible for addressing some of the 
a community responsibilities. They call themselves janitors. They sort of go along and they clean up Wikipedia and make sure that everybody adheres to sort of sort of certain standards around how articles are presented and things like that. So there's lots of different functions that people play. And at the upper end, there are folks who edit thousands of times a month, but they often do that with the assistance of bots and other sort of tools that let them do bulk actions across the site. So mm-hmm. the edit count is you know, often an indicator of people's activity, but it is this really long tail. And we do see a lot of fluctuation. And I think that that's what's kind of cool about it is you have like a core dedicated group of a couple thousand people who edit re- a ton, couple, and then you have sort of tens of thousands of people who edit uh, you know, for pretty frequently throughout the course of the month. And then you have this incredibly long tail of people who maybe have edited once in their life, uh, but nonetheless have made a contribution. Now, what does that mean in terms of diversity? Well, it's a great question because A, we kind of don't know as much as we'd like to. Mm. I mentioned that we have a billion and a half unique devices, and I didn't say unique users because we don't track any of that data. We have very strong privacy policies, so we have anonymized information about everyone that's coming to the sites, and we haven't created sort of the ability to identify unique users and think and understand what their demographic profiles are, or you know, use external data in order to model for that. And that's that's actually something that we take very seriously because we think, you know, you don't walk into a library and have someone looking over your shoulder as you're learning. We want you to be able to learn and look up whatever you want on Wikipedia as well. But we do have some research, and that research indicates that Wikipedia is written by a rather narrow set of people demographically, and absolutely there's probably lots of, there are lots of questions about implicit bias and diversity. So the example that is really stark to me is that only fewer than 2% of edits to Wikipedia come from the continent of Africa. And yet, you have content about the continent of Africa. You've got, you know, about political systems, about uh, about nations, about history, heritage, culture, all sorts of information that is really critical. I mean, it's a cradle of civilization. It's where we all come from um, to our common humanity, as well as being a thriving, vibrant content, a continent with, you know, some of the fastest growing middle income economies in the world and just a huge sort of fascinatingly rich diverse culture hundreds of lang hundreds of lang- not thousands of languages you know tremendous diversity and yet all of that is written represented by two percent of our total editing population which means that people outside of africa are editing more about the continent of africa than people inside of africa you're going to have bias when that's the case i am not going to know as much about senegal as somebody from senegal let a, or someone from Ghana, let alone someone from <laughs> Senegal, right? So we want to see a greater diversity of editors so that we have a greater representation of what the world actually looks like. And it doesn't mean that someone from Senegal should only edit about Dakar and I should only edit about San Francisco, but let's be editing about the topics that are relevant to us or of interest to us so that we have a fuller perspective. I would love to know what someone from Dakar thinks, like how they would describe the city of San Francisco, right? It would give us a very different perspective yeah. than you and I sitting here you know, in the middle of downtown in the financial district. Um, and so similarly, we see that play out. Uh, about 20% of the editors of Wikipedia, give or take, are women. Um, now, that also corresponds to only about 18% of biographies on English Wikipedia are, are about women. 
it's not a one for one. Women don't only edit about women. Men don't only edit about men. But we do know that a greater diversity of editors and contributors reflects a greater diversity of lived experiences, different interests, different perspectives that anyone can bring to an issue. So a big part of what we do at the Wikimedia Foundation is invest in and support diverse editing communities through initiatives, through training, through uh, gatherings, convenings, and the sort of giving folks the sort of support that says, hey, your contributions are valued. We want to invest in supporting you in learning how to work on this system and be successful in this system because we think, you know, if we really want to get to the sum of all knowledge, then we really need the diversity of all the world's experiences. Yeah, I mean, uh, speaking of Africa, I mean, it, it's supposed to be that in, I don't know how many years, 30 years or something, Af- the, co- the continent of Africa is going to make up 50% of the population. Yeah, something t- crazy it's, like it's, that. It's, I actually know these numbers because we yeah. did a bunch of research trying to think about where do we want to invest in the future of knowledge. Right. And by 2100, 42, so the year 2100, 42% of the world's population will be African. Wow. Which is wild if you think about it so you know everybody talks about sort of the growth of you know asian demographic trends but that's actually just completely leveled out and so that's really where the growth is and there are so many african languages that are completely underrepresented in not just on wikipedia but on the internet today and you have folks who maybe you know they might speak uh french or portuguese or or english but they also maybe speak three or four other languages based on where their community is from and sort of what they speak at home and so there's just this incredible opportunity to be engaging in different languages and thinking about both local knowledge, indigenous knowledge, you know, knowledge that's reflected through an African perspective. So, yeah, we're a big part of our investment in the year, in the coming years will be in growing our African communities and supporting them. We just did our annual conference last year in South Africa, and it was it was really fun. Awesome, awesome. Appreciate you schooling me on those numbers as opposed to me just making. <laughs> no, them up. <laughs> I'm imp- I'm impressed that you know that most most folks don't. So that's very cool. Uh, I was I was close. Um, <laughs> Awesome. And, and speaking of the future of Wikipedia, um, help me understand, like, how are you looking at the opportunities, the growth areas, um, and, and m- most importantly, I would, I'm thinking about the risks. Like, mm. what are the risks to this public good that has some incredible momentum and, and staying power? What are the risks of that being disrupted? Yeah, I'll be honest, I always sort of um, wobble back and forth between the future is incredibly bright and optimistic and there's all this opportunity for us to do this incredible work with all these amazing people and oh my gosh, there's such an urgency because everything is changing and you know the operating environment we're working in is gets more difficult by the day. So on the on the future of Wikipedia, you know, today we're a website and everything we do is read right through the website. Yet I think if you only see us as the articles on the website, you're actually, it's like looking at the surface of a pond and not seeing the ecosystem that is under the water, around the edges, you know, in the air. Wikipedia is five, 50 million articles across 30, 50 million articles across 300 languages. It is one of the world's most utilized um, machine learning trading databases Mm -hmm. because of its influence on natural language processing and natural language generation, machine translation, uh, structured ontologies, you name it. If you are working in the field of data science, you have probably trained something on Wikipedia at some point. Um, And 
So, you know, we know that we have a really important sort of computational value to the way that you know, the Silicon Valley continues to develop products, the way that um, data science continues to understand uh, the way that humans associate information and create connections and how that we model all of that. Um, we also know that all of that knowledge that exists is unstructured in ways that means that you can't necessarily extract all of the insights out of it right now. Um, you don't necessarily have the ability to go from Arabic Wikipedia to Russian Wikipedia and see how different perspectives are modeled in different ways or what information exists in Russian that doesn't exist you know, in, in English or German or what have you. And mm. so we have an incomplete picture of the world. I really want us to go from thinking of ourselves as a website, which was what we started with, to thinking of ourselves as a platform for a container for knowledge. Um, and not just article knowledge, but all sorts of different information, rich media, structured data, uh, you name it, really. And so what we're looking at doing is how do we take the infrastructure that we've built out to support the world's fifth most popular website? How do we take this platform that has such incredible traffic and actually make it a service to other knowledge organizations and institutions? How do we make it easier for other knowledge organizations, so libraries, um, universities, scientific publishers, to be able to get high quality information into Wikipedia to expand the breadth of our, what exists on our sites, but also how people can access their missions. Because if you're talking to a librarian, it doesn't matter if it's in Tunisia or Argentina or uh, Norway, they have the similar mission, which is they've got these incredible collections and they want more people to be able to find and discover them. And so Wikipedia becomes the connective tissue for a lot of discovery and learning in the world. So how do we actually do that at scale, I think is a big part of what we're trying to do. And then how do we make sure that all of this information is contained and stored and accessible in ways that you can actually um, uh, build things off of it and uh, extract insights that aren't currently possible. So right now we've sort of edged into that with Wikipedia as the articles and then we have this project called Wikidata which is our open link structured database project and there are 50 million articles in Wikipedia, there are 50 million items in Wikidata and Wikidata allows you to model the relationship between things. So it allows you to model the relationship between you know what is the role of San Francisco in California? Well of course we know it's a city but like what is how many cities of this size exist in the United States? How many cities of this size exist as the capitals of, of countries? You know it, these are very basic examples but it also can say uh, you know how many uh, politicians are um, the sons or daughters of another politician that held that office previously. And now all of a sudden we have insight that's directly related to governance and tells us, okay, well, you know, what does this mean for like democratic processes if you know, positions are inherited? Stuff like that you can't just ask Wikipedia today, but with Wikidata you can actually pull some of these insights out in really um, interesting ways. And we've seen people build all sorts of very cool sort of projects on top of it because again, it's all completely open and it's public domain data and the like. Um, so we want to be able to continue to move into this place where you have the ability to process the information, the raw unstructured information in Wikipedia in ways, whether it's through building out more effective APIs or service layer um, approaches that allow for us to build new features, new experiences on top of all of this richness that's in Wikipedia right now. Uh, whether that's, you know, you could imagine 
the future in which all of the geotagged information in Wikipedia starts to inform augmented reality experiences as you walk through the world. You can say, oh my god, I, what's around me right now? Right now, that's it, you can do it, but it's super hacky. So what we want to do is make that really easy and really think of ourselves we talk internally about knowledge as a service. Like, what does it mean to have knowledge as a service? What does it mean for knowledge to be useful in different ways? What does it mean to take all of the richness of Wikipedia and be able to extract more richness from it for a broader audience, for a broader sort of product set and the like? Um, so yeah, moving from a website to really thinking of ourselves as more of a platform and service layer for information. And then how do we preserve that in a way that it's still bi-directional? So it's not just about consumption, but also about contribution. So if you are you know, walking through the Presidio and you want to know what was that gun battery that used to be here and when was it built and for you know, what purpose, and you actually see the plaque and you say, oh, Wikipedia is not right about this, how can you update it in real time? Uh, so I think that that's a really important part of the promise that we're trying to get to. So the future for us is how do we uh, bring more knowledge in? How do we connect other institutions that have all this great information? How do we introduce the hopefully not just one and a half billion folks, but like, you know, three billion folks to all of those other institutions that are doing great work, great research, great learning. Um, and then how do we make it more useful for more people to build cool stuff on top of? Wow, excellent. I mean, what what I just thought of was it's kind of like when you go to a great museum and you put on the headset and you walk by and it tells you about mm -hmm. each piece of art. I never thought about like how you could do that for a city or like a national park or something totally. like that. How cool would that be? And wow. in fact, we That's actually partner. So we partner with great museums. Right now, one of our biggest partnerships that we're really proud of is we partnered with the Metropolitan Museum in New York City, which is the third largest, it's called an encyclopedic museum in the world after you know the British Museum, the Louvre, and the uh, Metropolitan Museum. They donated all of the items in their collection that are in the public domain, high quality images and all of the data, metadata around those items to Wikipedia. And so now if you go to Wikipedia, you can find images from the Met's collection and all of the data around that. Where was it collected? By whom? In what time period? In what location? And why this is really exciting is the Met has millions of visitors over the course of the year. It's a huge institution, but Wikipedia has millions of visitors every day. And so now all of a sudden, this is an institution that has a mission to inform, educate the public, to preserve culture, to make it accessible to more people. And it's not just limited to the folks who can walk through the front doors of that institution in New York. It is now accessible to anyone on the planet with a working internet connection. Mm, I love that. I want to do that for the world. I, I love, every library, I love that every idea. institution. Wow. That's my goal. And, and so, and so t let's talk about the risks too, right? Because every big successful organization always has a target on its back. Someone <laughs> saying, hey, we can do that better or we can, we can monetize this in some way. Um, how do you think about the risk of small players or, or other big tech players uh, in terms of uh, Wikipedia's future? Yeah, I think there's, I mean, the risk is always, can we be better than who we are today? I mm -hmm. think is, is the question. Um, what gives me hope is that we've been around for 18 years and we continue to evolve and, you know, as I uh, always like to point out, we're the fifth most popular site on the internet, which is not a testament to us, it's actually a testament to humanity that folks value learning so much that an encyclopedia 
is still like number five for the world. We're not selling shoes, you know, <laughs> like we, we don't have like fun cat memes or like what, what have you. People just come to learn. So that's a testament right. to the world. Um, so I think as long as there's a hunger in the world for learning, like there's a role for us to play. The question is, can we continue to evolve with the way the world wants to learn? And I think that that's really important. So the risk for, I think we think about the risks as we want, you know, right now, um, we know that one of the most underserved languages on Wikipedia relative to the population size is Arabic. There's about 300 plus million native Arabic speakers. Arabic Wikipedia is a little over 600,000 articles. The ratios are just way off in terms of the need for content in Arabic and the amount of information that we have. And that's true across the web in, in total. There's less than 1% of content is in Arabic. What could we do with things like machine translation to be able to support our community in um, scaling that really quickly so that there's more content available? Even if it's imperfect, even if it needs to be edited, even if it should be reviewed and then published, what could we do to support that? And do we have the capacity today to do that? Right now, we currently don't, but I think it's the sort of, th it's the sort of thing that we are looking at around how do we take that forward? Um, you know, that's just like the internal thing. Can we innovate quickly enough? Can, we, as I said earlier, can we like make sure that our stack is actually architected in a way that we can build into play features faster? Because we were built as this really fun open source project that we like to refer to as a just-in-time architecture. You know, as something broke, we fixed it and we accu accumulated all this debt. And so now when we go to deploy something new, we have to literally roll it out. We have 300 Wikipedias. It has to go one by one by one by one because there's no consistency. Everything is an edge case. So can we like re-architect or refactor some of this and these underlying dependencies so that we can build faster? That's another risk for us. But I think the bigger risks are really in the landscape around us. And I view them as, as twofold. Um, one is in policy and one is in competition. And you know, I like to tell folks, you know, this is there's the opportunity space, it's the libraries, it's connecting that vision, it's the Metropolitan Museum of Art, as I was saying. Um, then there's the urgency, which is we operate a nonprofit um, in the world's most highly capitalized and competitive marketplace, perhaps the most highly capitalized and competitive marketplace that has ever existed, which is the online space, it is the digital world, and we have a $100 million a year budget and 350 staff, and we're trying to do it all as a nonprofit, really consistent with mission orientation and values. So can we innovate fast enough? Can we compete in this marketplace? Which nobody thinks they're competing with us, but we know that we're competing for attention. We know that we're competing for um, positionality in terms of being in front of people when they're searching for information. We know that other platforms, um, you know, like uh, Amazon and Apple and uh, Google use a lot of Wikipedia's content in their personal devices and their customized results when you search for information. That's all great, but it also means like what's the value that we're providing or what's the relationship we have with users who are seeking that information. And so, you know, we there's the there's the internal risks, then there's the external of how how does the marketplace change around us? What happens if Google search algorithm changes and Wikipedia drops out? We don't have a special agreement with them. It's not like, you know, we have a top position that just that's based on what people need and what people are looking for. If that traffic goes away, well, that's a risk to us. Um, and then I think there's, so that's a competitive landscape. And then there's the landscape of the policy 
conversation around technology is changing really fast. We're hearing here in the United States and certainly in Europe an increased desire by policymakers to think about how to regulate technology. We're not necessarily opposed to talking about regulation. It could be that there's some really good ways to do it. Lots of sectors and industries are regulated. Um, but the way that a, one might regulate um, another big company is not necessarily going to work for Wikipedia. And so we are looking at all of this and going, uh-oh, you know, when the elephants fight, the grass gets tra trampled. Well, we just don't really want to be that grass. We want to be able to be here to speak for a version of the internet that's non-commercial, a version of the internet that has a public service mission. Um, and what does it mean to actually protect that version of the internet while also having conversations about what the sort of public good of the internet looks like as a whole? Mm. Wow, that's uh, that's more relevant than, than ever. As like politicians <laughs> are talking about, let's break up the big five tech. Let's companies. break up the big five. The era of self-regulation is over. You know, I think it's healthy to have these conversations. I'm not saying I agree with all of them, but right. it's healthy for us to have these conversations. And we just are sort of like we just want to make sure that again, there's a space to say, you know, well, we don't sell ads, so what is this going to mean for us? We're, we're not we're not involved in this conversation. You guys fight yeah. amongst yourselves. <laughs> Awesome, awesome. Well, uh, I'm certainly excited for the future of Wikipedia and, and how it all shakes out. Um, and with you at the helm, I have full confidence. Oh, thank um, you. So, so wanted to kind of zoom back out a little bit um, and zoom back in on you um, as Catherine Marr. <laughs> um, so, like like we talked about, uh, you grew up in Wilton, um, and we we kind of parted ways uh, at the end of high school graduation. I was off to Lehigh, you were off to Bucknell, two, two Patriot League schools, and uh, go Patriot League. And, uh, and, and then we, we kind of lost touch a little bit. And so last I heard you were, you were off to Bucknell, but you actually had quite an atypical path uh, through university. So uh, could you walk us through that and, and, and kind of the key decision points that you encountered? At yeah, that age? I am. Um... <laughs> what I, I don't think I shared very much at high school at the time was I applied to 11 colleges and was rejected from 10. Um, and so I got into my safety school, which I won't name because it's a good school. Uh, it just wasn't the right school for me. And I had to beg my way in off the wait list at Bucknell. Um, and I got there and, you know, it was... I had a lot of fun real fast, uh, but I think I was having too much fun. Um, and I knew that I, you know, my mom, I went home for Thanksgiving and she was like, yeah, you're getting all A's and you haven't cracked a book. I'm not really sure that this is the right, right fit. Um, and so, you know, it was also this interesting time. I'd, I'd left high school thinking I really wanted to study international uh, relations or something like po you know, public policy or something like that. And I got to Bucknell. And I, I was really interested in the Middle East. And then, as you remember, the first week of college, 9-11 happened. And so this area that I had been interested in anyway before was all of a sudden all over the news. And I remember thinking, wow, I, I, I don't know what I'm supposed to parse from any of this. I should just go over to the region and learn for myself. And so I withdrew from Bucknell in part because I was more compelled to go do this thing and in part because as my mom said I was having too much fun um, and needed to apply myself and I ended up um, moving to Cairo in January of 2002 to study Arabic and I lived in Egypt I thought I was going to stay for a few months I stayed for nearly two years I think um, studied Arabic, loved living in Cairo, learned a huge amount, traveled all over the region, um, ended up 
finding my way back to the United States through applying to transfer schools and ended up getting accepted. Um, most places were like, you have to start all over from scratch. We're not taking any of your credits. NYU being the sort of uh, very business-minded school that it is, is, I guess, the nice way of saying it, accepted all my credits as long as I would pay them cold, hard cash. And <laughs> But they did send me, they said, all right, but we're going to send you to Prague first uh, before you actually come to NYU. Um, this is a long story, but the reason was it was 2003. We just The United States had just invaded Iraq. There was this very... Lots of stuff about how Europeans, um, uh, there was anti-American sentiment overseas, and so they had nobody going to their study abroad program, so they made all the transfers go. So here I am. I am like, I have made the decision to leave Egypt. I am so sad about it. I do not want to go. I'm like really focused on my Arabic studies, and I end up in Prague. Surrounded by folks who'd never been overseas really before, studied abroad. I'm the only language study options are German and Czech, and I'm like, I don't what. <laughs> so I, I take like a semester of German, um, and eventually find my way back to NYU. At which point they're like, okay, you need to take all these prerequisites from freshman year and also graduate in three semesters <laughs> with your entire degree. And I was like, ah, crap. So, um, but I did. Uh, and so, and yeah, I graduated in 2005 with a degree in Middle Eastern and Islamic studies. I lived in Egypt and Lebanon and Syria. Um, I ended up going and working for a bank for a short period of time, which I pro- they sent me to Germany because I'd studied German for that one semester in Prague. What <laughs> <laughs> I did end up learning some German in Germany. I worked there for two years and then eventually realized this was not for me. And um but had a lot of fun living in Europe. Um, can, can I just ask yeah. you a question yeah, go about ahead. the Middle East? So this is fascinating. So this is after 2001, 9-11 had happened. Yeah. It's so bad that NYU can't get people to go to Europe yeah. because people are so <laughs> terrified of the Middle East like in the general vicinity. And in that exact same time, you have the total opposite idea of like, oh, let me go as close to yes. there as possible. Yes. I mean, just just help us understand that because like I, I, I'm probably more in the camp where I was like, I was really terrified like of not of going to Europe, but, <laughs> but, but of, of uh, the idea of like visiting Egypt like that soon after the attacks, like that would be really scary to me. So just walk, walk us through like your mindset there and like how you th- saw the risk reward profile. Yeah, um, I will, I, you know, I I was reading all sorts of contradictory things. I was reading what was going on in the news. And, and again, I'd been interested in this even when we were in high school, um, when we were seniors in high school, because I was curious about the conflict in Israel and Palestine. And it was all the, inf- it was the second intifada. I listened to it in NPR every morning on the way to school. And I was going, well, I, this information, I don't understand. Like, why is this not a resolvable problem? Very, very naive, right? <laughs> Extremely naive. I bet I can fix this. <laughs> I'm not going to admit to that. Um, and so I I thought, well, if I'm going to learn anything about this, I should learn about it at the source, and I should go learn the language. And so the opportunity was, should I study Hebrew or should I study Arabic? Because I didn't want to be reading about a place in translation. I didn't want to be learning about a place in translation. I wanted to have the skills to be able to, to learn for myself. And Arabic always a 300, you know, 300 million people speak Arabic, and not as many people speak Hebrew. So I went, okay, I'm going to go learn Arabic. Um, my Arabic is not great. I don't want your listeners to get the wrong impression. Uh, it was decent at one point. But for me, it was 
it's a little bit like I'm afraid of flying, which is crazy given how much I fly. But the way I handle it is I've learned as much as possible about the physics of flight, the points of time in which there's risk, like turbulence, totally safe, right? That sort of thing. For me, going to the region and learning the language and immersing myself in this different place, this different city, this different culture was about demystifying and trying to cut through some of the lenses through which we hear and learn about the world. And I actually think it, while a degree in Middle Eastern and Islamic studies would never conceivably set you up to be here at Wikipedia, I actually think it is exactly the sort of thing a Wikipedia editor will do, which is say, I want to learn about this thing. I'm not an expert, but I'm going to immerse myself in this information and then try to create a synthesis of it that I can share back with the world. So yeah, and I, I mean, it, it also helps that Egypt is great and full of great people and great food and really interesting history and super cool culture. And then I got to go to Syria and Syria at the time was phenomenal place to live. Um, obviously really, really significant political issues and I don't want to, to minimize any of that. It's why you, it's why the, both of those countries are in the places that they are today. Um, because of the lack of freedoms afforded to, to the people who live there. But but it was just so completely different than the way the region was being portrayed back at home. I came back in 2003 over a short period. I, I got sick and I had to come back. I had my appendix out. And um, I remember looking at the news and being like, wait, do we, what? Like, this is not even, the news here in the U.S. was so different than the news overseas, even on BBC versus CNN. It was I felt like I was living in two different worlds. And so I'm so grateful to have had that experience to actually go and be in a place at a time that was very different and inform my own opinions. And I think it really, I don't think I'd be here today if that hadn't happened. So Bucknell was my, um, no, no hating on Bucknell, not getting into college, which was my own fault, uh, not getting into college because I didn't study hard enough in junior year, ended up being the best, because I got that cool car. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> ended up being the best possible thing for me, I think, in the end. Wow, wow. Well, that speaks so highly of your character to, 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 to do that, to, to go. I mean, I, I just think of the analogy people use is, in business sometimes, which is if there's a fire, you the one running into the fire, running out of the fire. And uh, and uh, I just I think it's amazing that you were running into that fire saying, let me find out for myself. Mm. And 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 I also I, I mean, I, I lived in Canada for uh, a few years and obviously uh, it's much more similar to the U.S. than but it's different. <laughs> I live there, too. But it's, it's different. different. It's yeah. different. And it, it and you you kind of have a different perspective on things after you've lived in a different country and you come back and you're like wait a sec I mean I had this experience in 2016 when I was thinking about moving back to the states and I saw everybody tweeting about like if you know my candidate doesn't win I'm moving to Canada and meanwhile I was in the midst of like going through a process of like getting my Canadian permanent residency I'm like Canada doesn't want you just because you're a US citizen like you people don't understand what you're talking about so um, so that, that's that's interesting so so let's pick up from there so after that you you worked at a, a number of nonprofits right yeah. so UNICEF World Bank access now um, all seemingly at the intersection of technology, human rights. Help, help us understand just like what was the common thread throughout your early career and, and what was your thesis and, and how did it evolve? Yeah. So again, when I, was a, when I was a kid, we always had a computer in the house because my grandfather worked for IBM and so he made a point of 
giving us this computer, which weirdly enough, my brothers didn't care about, but I was super into. And so I would be sitting there. I had my like PC World subscriptions and my computing magazine. And I was like really obsessed with like, how am I going to get faster drives? And I had my screwdriver and I would take (laughs) apart the tower and I'd like reinstall like the new and latest hottest like CD-ROM or whatever it was. Um, And like, you know, installed the first modem because nothing came with modems back then. And so I just love tech. I just thought it was super cool and, um, you know, would stay up late. And when the internet came along, I begged my parents to get it. My father was like, the internet's a passing phase. (laughs) (laughs) We could probably sit this one out. I (laughs) disagreed, eventually convinced them. And I think these days, if I were, you know, a young woman growing up, I would be immediately like, mainstream put into like stem enrichment programs and all of that but that didn't really exist in our high school and so uh, tech was just sort of a thing that I liked on the side when I left the bank HSBC um, I got this job at UNICEF working on uh, one laptop per child using one laptop per child uh, in some of the programs they were doing with young people around the globe, doing recordings of their own personal life stories and things like that. Um, it was a, it's called youth engagement programming. And I realized this was actually a thin synthesis of two things that were really meaningful to me. The exposure to how inexpensive open technologies can be really transformative, um, and also the ability to work in uh, places around the world on issues that I really cared about. So when I was living in the Middle East, um, I, you know, I, I referenced it earlier, but it, it was very evident the lack of um, human development and individual freedoms that people had, political participation, civic participation, human rights. Um, you know, I saw protests violently put down by police, for, by police forces. Um, I have a number of friends who are activists and who've worked as human rights activists and independent journalists in the region, and I saw directly the repression that they faced. Um, So working first with UNICEF on technology and human development, I worked on HIV and AIDS prevention and mostly in East Africa um, using mobile phones felt like a great way to bring these things together. I had these skills in, in simple, cheap easy to idiot proof tech that's the kind of tech that I was good at um, and this sort of ability and experience working and living in places that you know were for different um, and I and I felt like that was just sort of this this bringing together of these two great loves so I started at UNICEF as I said we did a lot of work around uh, AIDS HIV and AIDS prevention so particularly um, mothers who have HIV are you have like a 99% success rate in preventing the child from having HIV. So you can have what they call an AIDS-free generation, but only if the mothers take the drugs at the same time every single day. Now, if you don't have a watch or a clock, then it's going to be really hard for you to know to do that. And so the advent of inexpensive mobile phones, you know, those old Nokias, meant for the first time you actually had the ability to set alarms and you had the ability for nurses to follow up and say, did you take the meds? When are you coming in next? And so it just totally transformed medical care. And I was working with UNICEF just as this was all sort of coming into place, as people were getting access to cell phone signals, as you know, the cost of mobile access was dropping. And so we did lots of programs around this, um, mostly worked in Zambia and Malawi, myself. Um, and then I thought, I'm really interested in how do you take some of these similar approaches and 
do this work, but more in the space of democracy and human rights, which was uh, the original passion for me. And so I went and worked for an organization called the National Democratic Institute, which does this work. I worked in a lo in what they call closed states, so Egypt, Burma, um, Haiti after the earthquake, Sudan, South Sudan before the referendum, on how does simple, cheap technologies help citizens participate in self-determination. Um, and then after the Arab revolutions, went back to the region working with the World Bank on local good governance and, and good government. So small, how do you start to think about how to eliminate corruption at the local government level through better access and communication between policymakers and local elected officials and the people who need services, access to jobs, access to education, things like that. And so I was doing all of that work um, and starting to see some of these trends in technology where governments had gotten wise to the fact that people were using tech to empower themselves. And so we started to see things like network shutdowns across uh, whole countries when protests would happen. Um, we started to see things like mass surveillance of people doing human rights work. Um, and so I got, I moved into more of the human rights policy space, which is where I was prior to joining Wikimedia. So it it feels like, for me, looking back, there's this really clear thread of uh, starting with basic access to development. Like, do kids have enough to eat? Are they born healthy? Um, can they access education? To thinking about how do we then give, uh, not give, how, how do folks have the opportunity to participate in building the societies that they want to live in? To how do we then defend the basic rights of folks um, as they are trying to build those societies for themselves against repression and authoritarianism. Um, and so when Wikimedia called and they said, hey, you know, open source, one of the biggest open source projects in the world, uh, focused on, you know, participation and people having a voice and building something collectively together, community run and um, community governed, I went, oh my gosh, this is, this is it. Like, this is the place that I can bring, again, bring these things together and do the, do this work that I love. Um, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm there. Sign me up. <laughs> yeah. And did you have any idea that within two years you would be pulled no. in as the CEO? <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely not. No, I started as the head of communications. And two years later, uh, the board sort of, we had a transition. My predecessor left. Uh, and the board said, hey, do you mind running the place for a few months while we find someone new? And <laughs> I said, oh, okay, I guess. And three months after that, they said, do you mind just running the place? <laughs> well, that's a, that's a good proving ground to, uh, to test, test if it makes sense, both for you and for, and for the board. Um, what's, this is gonna be the last question on Wikimedia. Sure. Um, what's the most fun part of your position? And what's the hardest part? Mm, the hardest part is that I am the unelected mayor of a highly informed and opinionated uh, small town. And <laughs> everybody knows my email address and knows how to reach me on Facebook or on Twitter and register their discontent with the pothole in front of their house. Um, <laughs> And now expand this out to the size of the world. <laughs> and it is, it's super, it's hard. I mean, you don't want to disappoint people, but you also have to make decisions and you not, when I, I can send out emails explaining my thinking, but not everyone reads the emails. And so they still get upset, you know? So 
you just it's a it's an exercise in learning to live with disappointment, I guess, mm. uh, which is hard. I'm a somebody who wants to make people happy and and give people joy in their lives. Um, sure, it's like uh, Tim Ferriss says. Uh, I forget the exact quote, but it's like in order to make big things happen, you have to be okay with like small yeah. mistakes and small failures along the way. I've been thinking about that a lot in yeah. my life and uh, sounds similar. Yeah. And so the best part. Oh, the best part. The best part is I wake up every single day and I think Wikipedia is a example that humans can be generous, collaborative, and kind. The fact that we have decided as humanity that, as I said earlier, that we still seek knowledge and it still has value. And the fact that you have people from every walk of life, every country, all these different languages work together to maintain this thing on behalf of their fellow humans. It's like, how couldn't that get you out of bed in the morning? It's great. Even on the worst day, it's great. It's a beautiful thing. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Um, wanted to dig in a little bit on your personal philosophy. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and we've touched on a few of these things, but uh, my pet favorite question, uh, what's one thing you believe that uh, most other people do not? Mm, I think I actually believe in people. Um I genuinely believe that humans are kind of beautiful and good. And I know that there's so much evidence to the contrary, but the small similarities that you see when you, you know, you, you've traveled a lot. I, when you travel the, the world, and, and you don't have to travel the world to see this, everybody wants to give their kids opportunity. Everybody wants their community to be treated fairly and have access to opportunity. People sacrifice themselves every minute of every day on behalf of other people, whether it's members of their family or members of their community or members of their country. I, we may misdirect that energy at times and do so in ways that are painful and problematic, and I think you're, that's what we're seeing in the world as a whole. But, but there is this this fundamental humanity that I find truly transformatively inspiring when you see it out in the world, people against all odds trying to do the right thing. So, I mean, and oftentimes even the people who you meet that you're like, I don't think you're doing the right thing. When you start to talk to them, you realize, oh, well, our framework for what the right thing is just is different. Um, so that is an unpopular opinion in the sense that I don't think a lot of people hold it, uh, or I think a lot of people might think it's naive, and I'm okay with that. I've seen some of the worst up close um, in, in my work and in my travels, but I think what is redeeming is I've also seen some of the best, and I, I cling to that belief that the best is actually where we've got to go. I mean, it doesn't just happen, but um, but as... Someone tweeted the other day, like, if you're if you haven't sort of stopped to think about how to improve the world at this moment in time and how to direct your energies to it, you know, you really should. And it was I'm paraphrasing; it was much more eloquent, and that resonated with me so much because I think that if we were collectively to direct our efforts at actually trying to do right by each other, um, we'd end up with more Wikipedia's. I love it. I love it. It's it's a shame that that is an unpopular opinion, I but, know. but it's true. But it, it's true. I, I think um, it, there's no doubt about it. Like it, it, with all the news and everything, it's it's easy to be cynical. But it's a nice reminder to that there is 
humanity expressing itself like on a daily basis um, throughout the world. I mean, James Baldwin, who the writer who wrote a lot about the black experience in the United States, that was that was what he did. That you know, of course, for your audience, I would hope um, if you great Wikipedia article, but also just read his books. Um, has this quote that is, "I can't be a pessimist because I'm alive." And there's a huge tension in that. I mean, he's dealing, was writing at the time, dealing with racism and bigotry and homophobia and the conditions in this country, both, you know, which are not much better today in terms of uh, racism. But the tension in that is there's so many reasons for pessimism, right, that one could fall to. And in fact, those would be very sane and legitimate reasons to be a pessimist. But the very act of living requires one to be an optimist because you wake up every day and draw breath, because you wake up every day and there's an opportunity to start again. And so while the context for his quote is very different than my experience as a, a white, you know, relative, pretty privileged woman sitting in San Francisco, I think that there's some real grounding to that that, that I always come back to. Hmm. I love it. I love it. So tell us about a failure or a mistake that you've experienced in your life um, and what you learned from it. Other than not getting into college. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, I actually, I got fired. I know I've never really talked about this. I got fired from my job at the bank at HSBC. Um, and, or at least, yeah, I mean, it was a little more complicated than that, but they basically came to me and they're like, you don't want to do this. And I'm living in Toronto and I was having fun in Toronto. That that was great. But it's true. I'd spent the last two years working in first commercial banking in Germany and then retail banking in Canada because it was part of this program where they sent you around to different places and you learned different parts of the business. And um, yeah, I did not want to be a banker. And it was incredibly tough to be told that you know I wasn't good enough and I didn't hack it and I um, and I had all of a sudden because I was on a visa there and because my apartment was covered by the by work I had to be out of Canada in like I think less than 10 days yeah they don't mess around I do not mess around <laughs> as you know and and I packed up and I had to move back into my parents place while I negotiated that you know the outbound with the bank and I found myself living, you know, classic millennial, like, I don't know, 23 <laughs> in my parents' place. Um, and how fortunate I was that, that I could do that, right? Um, but it it really reminded me that anything can change at any, or it not taught me. It I knew in a very intrinsic way at that point that anything could change at any minute. I had this cushy job and this like leadership development program and they were like, mm, yeah, no, you're not good enough, right? Or you're not committed enough. Um, and I think that, that that's something that still animates me today is like I look around at, at this role and I think I've got to move faster because I'm, you know, the, I might not be here for forever. I won't be here for forever, but like what is my obligation to do the work and the conditions are different but what are the obligate what's my obligation to do the work as well as i can as as with as much urgency as i can because everything could change right you and that's true in terms of of any form of loss you could lose your job you could lose your partner you could lose a family member a parent you could you know there's you could lose your apartment like or home I, and i don't mean to sound so pessimistic but it just 
I think it gave me an acute understanding that I need to be responsible for what it is that I'm doing in a way that enables me to do the work that I want to do, right? Like, you can't just take anything for granted. That is an amazing story, and I'm so grateful to you for sharing it, because <laughs> people are going to look at your LinkedIn, they're going <laughs> to see, like, you know, your Wikipedia page, and they're like, oh my goodness, she did all these amazing things, she went from this to that and that, and moved up and moved up and moved up, but there's no... There's no record of things like this, mm-hmm. and, um, and 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 that's one of the reasons I, I ask it, and one of the reasons I, I like to dig deep into people's background and ask these types of things because that that makes people look at you and say, "Wow, I just got fired from my job, and there's hope on the other side." Like, and everyone goes through these kinds of experiences in one way or another. So, um, yeah. so, I, so I really appreciate you having the courage to to share that. Oh, thanks. I mean, and it and it was tough. Like, you know, you're taking. I was commuting into New York to try to find a job. I took the, the first contract job I could take. I was making barely enough money to cover my living expenses, and I'm still riding the train an hour and a half each way, you know, from my parents' place. Um, and it just, it made me want to want to hustle harder, which I knew mm-hmm. was, a, again, like a um, pretty common experience. But then a few years later when work shifted at UNICEF and our program started to wind down, I did the same thing. I got on buses at the Feng Wah bus down to DC and I would take it down in the morning and I'd go look for my next opportunity and then I'd ride it home at night because I couldn't afford to stay there and I didn't have any friends there. Um, so I would take the bus overnight so that I could get back just in time to take a shower and go into the office at UNICEF. So like, and again, not everyone can do that, right? Like incredible flexibility afforded to me by being young and single and you know having no dependents or dependencies but but I think that that experience of being like goodbye (laughs) really made a difference in terms of saying you know I got to go out and do this for myself that's amazing that's amazing story because a lot of people uh would have that experience and and face serious self-doubt like okay Am I employable? Am I uh, am I gonna have a successful career? Like, is this gonna happen again and whatnot? Um, so I like how you took that negative experience and you you flipped it around, saying, "Okay, well, then I need to work harder. I need to find my next thing. I need to uh, do things other people wouldn't do." But so. I still have self doubt. I think that you know that's yeah. the other thing is, regardless of what the LinkedIn page says, like <laughs> you know, self doubt is a huge part of. I think it's the first step to self development right it's being able to say where am I falling down on the job where could I be a better leader a better manager a better friend a better child you know child to my parents like um, what are the things that I take for granted that I shouldn't take for granted and then how do I get better at that and how do I know when it's time you know one thing I think about a lot is how do I know when it's time to move on Mm. when it's time for the next person the next voice the next perspective to step into this role or into these shoes and you know, I think you kind of have to always keep an eye on that sort of thing. Hmm. Wow, amazing perspective. Um, let me ask you this: uh, a lot of young people listen to this program and uh, trying to figure out where should they direct their efforts and, and passions. Can, what, what advice would you have for a young person who says, "Hey, I want to make an impact. I want to fight for the public good, um, and I'm also interested in technology." Like, how would you advise them? I would say if you're interested in technology, make sure you also cultivate an interest in humanity. And 
I think the reason I say that is, you know, ev everything is a technology. Pencils are a technology, right? Like the written word is a technology that we've developed. What makes it rich and meaningful is the context in which it's applied, the outcome that you build with it. Um, and so I would say, yes, learn technology. Technology is awesome. You can build things. It's super fun. Sometimes just the sheer elegance of a solution blows the, the mind. Like, how cool is that? But to the question of to what end, I think, is the most important question. And the only way to answer the question of to what end is to know what is the context of the society in which we live, the context of the place from which we come, the mistakes that we have made over time. Um, so I would say cultivate an interest in humanity uh, as well as an interest in technology. And then, ne you know, to the best of it, it that uh, the extent that it is possible, never work anywhere where that makes you feel compromised about yourself. Never work anywhere where you feel as though you have to make trade-offs in terms of your values or your ethics or your morals where you feel like you've participated. And, and this, these are small things. These are, you know, the way that um, the way that an organization treats service service employees, right? Like there, there are any number of ways in which you could be asked to do something that you feel like, well, that's not, that really wasn't my role. And like, why am I stuck with this responsibility and not getting any um, recognition for it? Or I, there's, there's so many ways in which you can feel compromised and I just don't, I know that it, you know, moving jobs is harder than it sounds. I've been there, but having a strong sense of what it is and who you are and being clear about that and then living in a way that is true to that, you're always going to have a better outcome. Um, and it'll let you keep learning, right? Like if you focus on what you're trying to get out of the experience and having that clarity, you end up allowing yourself to work for your goals and your values rather than what um, the op whatever opportunity comes along. So I know that's tough because you know, especially when you're young and especially when you're first getting started, you know, take the first job that comes along, of course, or take the best job that comes along. Uh, we've all been there. We've all done it. But but also make sure that you've got a strong sense of who you are in that because it's I think it's very easy. Um, I think it's very easy to forget, uh, especially when when there's a lot of expectations on folks to to sort of con I don't know I don't want to sound so negative conform but um, sure yeah. and, and you don't know what you don't know especially early in your career so um, and, and we're a lot of us are quite rational creatures so we, we tend to over rationalize we're like well right. I'm getting good experience this will set me up to do that right. um, that my boss is really tough on me but like it's going to help me in the long term and I always. I always kind of advise people to sit alone and just listen to your gut and like how are you feeling like after you let's say have an interview with a person mm -hmm. and like you may not be able to rationalize it but how did that like how do you feel after talking to that person and I always felt there was <laughs> some people after I talked with them even regardless of how impressive they were or intelligent or whatnot I just had this feeling in my stomach like I'm kind of not feeling it not feeling it or they kind of make me feel bad about myself yeah. in a weird way, like, um, and and I can't really describe it or, or articulate it, but every time I didn't listen to that voice, it was a mistake. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there are so many ways in which, like, it's okay to 
to recognize that you have room to grow and develop, right? And it's okay to, it's also okay to like screw up at work and then like have to figure out how to get out of the hole that you've done, you've made for yourself. But I once, you know, I once worked for this boss and I loved the job. Oh my God, you know, on paper, it was like the coolest, best job. It was exactly what I wanted to be doing at that point in my career. And it was the worst boss who made me feel bad about myself every single day. And I put up with it for, you know, much longer than I should have. And I realized afterwards how it wasn't just a bad job. It was, it, it degraded every aspect of my life, my, you know, my friendships. Like I was so focused on work. I, you know, I actually had to go back out and be like, hey guys, sorry, I like disappeared for six months. Like I could, you know, barely keep my head up. So I just think when, when you're in that moment, you know, yeah, don't, don't work for a place where you don't feel like you have value, fundamental value as a human being. Yeah. Yeah. I, I had an experience at, at work one time that was similar and it was so bad when I got home, usually it was very late, I had to, I couldn't go to sleep. Yeah. So I had to read for like an hour before like my mind would just forget about the day. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure other people could appreciate that. Um, but it gives you resilience. I mean, that's the one thing. Is yeah. It, it starts to give you perspective. Like I see situations now and I'm like, eh, not the worst I've seen. <laughs> <laughs> right. I've seen worse. Um, what's... What's one quote you either live by or you you think about a lot? Mm. Oh man, I'm like, where is my notebook? I really, I just had written it down. Go get it. <laughs> I write down quotes sometimes, but I mean, uh, so I this is not actually the one that I would have thought of, but it's I wrote down the past is a vast encyclopedia of calamities that you can still fix, which I think is a very negative way of saying I'm an optimist. But um, you know the the other one that I I live with is the I think it's the Sherazad story of like what is one thing that is always true, um, and it's the you know this too shall pass quote, and I think about that in in the sense of it's a bit cheesy, you know, but. Um, but it's this truth, it's not just that the hard times pass, but also that the good times pass. Mm-hmm. And that's really what I, I often think about is like, yes, there are hard times and recognizing that you just kind of have to sit with it for a little bit and it's gonna hurt and it's gonna suck and it's maybe gonna feel like it's all the end of whatever, if it's a you know, heartbreak or if it's a lost job or what, you know, a, a, the death of a loved one, it, it does pass. But then I also think a lot about you have to enjoy the joy when you have it because the joy passes too. And it makes those moments of joy and happiness and connection, whether it's with friends or family or you know, the passion of doing something really well, whether it's you know, athletic activity or work um, or co- you know, composing or making music, that joy is something that you won't always have to hold on to too. So just like, just like luxuriate in it in that moment in time. And I think that that, for me, um, let's, I think hopefully lets me be a little bit more present. I don't always, like, I'm not like a Zen person, I'm not there all the time. <laughs> but it is one thing that comes to mind when I'm, I'm thinking about sort of the moment or the place that I'm in. That's awesome. My, my Jamaican grandmother used, had her own uh, twist on it. She would say, it'll all come out in the wash. Yeah. And yeah. I, I think about that sometimes. But, but I, I also like your perspective on it's not just about the negative, it's about the positive. So, so really kind of um, relish in that. Mm. Um, how can people find you? How can people follow you? How can oh. people donate? How can people donate to Wikipedia? Um, 
Uh, it, I'm yeah. sure I'm sure people are going to enjoy this conversation and and want to keep up with what's going on with Catherine Mark. Uh, Donate.wikipedia.org is mm-hmm. the way you can donate mm-hmm. to Wikipedia. Um, we ask every year for you know for three dollars at the cost of a cup of coffee keeps us going and um, you know every single donation really does does count. So if you're already somebody who donates, thank you very much. Um, and if you give you know, get an email from me, and if you haven't donated yet, you know, we'd love you to donate. Um, and then I, I mean, I guess the the I try not to I try not to spend as much time on social media these days because I need to like get work done. But um, <laughs> but I am on Twitter at uh, K R M A H E R, um, and I'm not sh- I'm not saying it's the best feed, but you you know. Sure. I sh- you know, it's 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 fun. It's I fine. think I think it's I think it's good. <laughs> <laughs> I follow you. Um, yeah, but it's also easy to find me on the internet because Wikipedia. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. Well, Catherine, thank you so much for for spending the time with us. I, I think, um, I mean, Wikipedia itself is such an incredible organization and unique organization, and your background is uh, is super interesting and compelling. And I think the combination is just amazingly powerful. So. Thank you for being on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. It was fun. Thanks for listening to today's episode of the Epic Human Podcast. Today's episode was brought to you by SBZ Legal, a boutique law firm based in Oakland, California, that specializes in working with early stage startups. Having met all of the individuals at this organization, I can attest that they not only talk the talk, they really walk the walk. And you couldn't ask for a more down-to-earth, mission-oriented group of people. Highly recommend. Uh, And if you enjoyed today's episode, uh, please follow us on Twitter or Facebook at EpicHumanPod. Uh, And if you like today's episode, I would ask that you like and subscribe. And if you love today's episode, I would ask that you give us a rating and a review, good or bad. It really just helps to make the podcast better. So until next time, we will look forward to seeing you on the next episode of the Epic Human Podcast.